Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be back. Uh, I do need to begin with a little trepidation after what Keith just said about making apologies before large groups. Uh, But I I trust after this week that you're all my friends and you won't care. Um, So I I do need to publicly retract a statement that I made on Wednesday. Uh, I figure if Keith uh, offended the Russians, uh, I need to confess that I offended one of the unnamed female members of my family (laughs) by the wicked insinuation that my daughter had no interest whatsoever in old airplanes. Uh, That is not factually accurate, and uh, I have to say this morning, uh, publicly to my shame, I guess with some fatherly pride as well, that she was able to name virtually all the aircraft in the U.S. uh, Air and Space Museum when we visited, and uh, I just have to herewith ask for her forgiveness, and uh, I I got a thumbs up from the back, That's, that's good. Uh, The other uh, female member of my family remains guilty as charged, however. (laughs) Now, she's in the nursery, and she, she, uh, so, you know, we'll keep that between ourselves, okay? But uh, I do still love her very, very much, so that's my my public retraction. Uh, Let's open our Bibles, please, to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, which, of course, will be our meditation this morning. Psalm 127. Let us read the Word of God. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless both the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Well, let me address the boys and girls as usual as we begin today. It's been two days since we were together, so I want to review uh, with you where we have been. You remember, boys and girls, we saw on Monday that these songs of ascents are kind of like a playlist for the journey. God has written these special songs for Christians to sing as we go through life. And the first one that we looked at on Tuesday was Psalm 120, which spoke about the challenges of the journey, and especially the challenge of homesickness. You remember we saw that God put Christians into this world, and we are to live in this world, lots of wonderful things uh, that we enjoy here, But we really look forward to being at home with God in heaven. And in the meantime, we face challenges. The way the world speaks is different from the way we speak. The way that the world acts and behaves is different from the way we are to act and behave. And sometimes that's really hard. We are called to be lights shining in the darkness. Then on Wednesday, we looked at Psalm 122, and that is a song for the church. And you remember we saw that the church is kind of like the vehicle that God has given to us in which we travel to our destination. And we looked at two questions on Wednesday morning. 
Am I happy to be at church? And am I happy uh, to be serving in the church? Well, today uh, we're going to come home again after church, right? And we're going to look at this Psalm 127, uh, which I'm calling a Psalm for the home. And this Psalm talks to us about the company for the journey. Remember that it's a family road trip. And God has given us company as we journey uh, through life. He puts us all in families. And King Solomon, who wrote this psalm, describes your family uh, in a very interesting way. He says in verse 1, Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Boys and girls, your family is like a castle. It's like a castle. Have you ever visited a real castle before? Maybe not. Uh, not many real castles in America, perhaps. But some of you may have traveled and visited a, a castle. And uh, at the very least, you've surely seen pictures of them. Maybe you've studied about them uh, in history books. Well, when I was growing up uh, in Northern Ireland, we had lots of castles over there. And the Irish RP Church actually has its family camp in a castle. How cool is that? Okay, that's really cool. Um, Midwest Presbytery has its Golden Bell family camp. Uh, the Irish RPC has Castle Wellen family camp. Sorry, that's kind of hard to beat, okay? Uh, it's, it's beautiful here, okay? I, I love it here, but, but that's just really cool. Both great venues uh, in their own way. Well, boys and girls, you've seen pictures of old castles, right? And uh, they have very, very thick walls. Uh, they have fortified towers. They have heavy gates made of oak. Battlements along the tops of the walls where the archers can stand uh, and fend off the enemies. Why all these defenses? Well, because there are enemies who want to attack the castle. Uh, they want to take it for themselves. And if you didn't have those thick walls, if you didn't have those archers along the battlements, then you wouldn't be able to defend yourself. Well, Psalm 127 is saying that your home is kind of like a castle. You need strong walls with watchmen to keep out the enemies who may try to get in. Now, in olden days, as you probably know, uh, enemies would lay siege to a castle. They would camp outside the castle, and the people inside would close those, uh, those uh, great oak doors, maybe bring down the iron portcullis, if you know what that is, and try to keep them out. And in a similar way, our homes, our families, need to be ready to stand strong. We need to defend ourselves against certain enemies. Now, you may be thinking, well, who are the enemies that are trying to get into my home? Uh, I mean, let's face it, you probably don't expect uh, to wake up in the morning and find an army with drawn swords camping out on your front lawn. I don't think you've probably had that experience. But the Bible says that Christian families have three big enemies. The first enemy, the Bible calls the world. The world. You remember Psalm 120. We talked about homesickness because we live in a dark place, the land of Kedar. And we saw, as I just said, that the world speaks in a way we don't speak and acts in a way that we don't act. Well, this world in which we live that doesn't love God wants our families to speak and to act the same as them. And that's something we have to resist. We have to stand firm, boys and girls, against the world because we are God's special people. 
Maybe it's the TV shows that we watch. Maybe it's the music we listen to or the people that we hang out. In lots of different ways, we need to be watchful as God's special people so that we can be the light of the world. And then the second enemy that the Bible tells us about is our own sinful hearts. Our own sinful hearts. Sometimes the biggest dangers in our home actually come from inside the walls. Namely, inside our own hearts. Sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes we don't want to obey our parents We don't want to serve other people or do our chores or whatever it is. So sin tries to get into your home and brings about all kinds of strife, arguing and disobedience and unhappiness. And then the third enemy is the devil. The devil. The Bible says that he is like a prowling lion seeking somebody to devour, and that we are to resist him. We're to be watchful, we're to be vigilant, like those soldiers along the tops of the walls guarding the city. The Bible says that we are to resist him because he's really, really sneaky. And he will tempt you, and he will tempt your family members to sin. He'll tempt your mom and dad He'll tempt your siblings, and he will tempt you. He wants you to do his will and not God's. So how are we going to resist these three enemies? Well, the good news is God has told us what we need to stand firm as families, and we find them in this psalm. Verse 3 says, "'Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb are a ward.'" Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You see, inside the castle of your home, there are soldiers. And some of those soldiers are boys and girls, right? You boys and girls are like soldiers inside the home. Solomon says the children in the home are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Now the warrior here means certainly your parents, but ultimately it's talking about God. God is training you boys and girls to be grown-ups that will be able to stand against your enemies in the gate, to contend with them, to fight with them, to resist them. You guys are the future moms and dads, pastors and missionaries, and active church members, as we were thinking about on Wednesday. Boys and girls, your home is like a castle, and you are future soldiers that God is training to fight. As you come to a conference like this, As you go to your classes in a few minutes, you are being trained, trained to stand firm against the world, against your own sinful hearts, and yes, also against the devil. You are, of course, all baptized members of the church. And that means that your parents have already enrolled you in what we call basic training, right? Some of you here perhaps are from military families, and you'll know that soldiers begin their preparation with basic training. Basic training is where you learn to obey your commanding officer. Jesus is called the captain of the armies of the Lord. And so you learn, boys and girls, to obey. You learn to serve him by learning to obey your mom and dad. Okay, basic training is where you also learn how to use your weapons, how to march, how to drill, all the disciplines that you will need for combat. It's at home that you first learn how to put on and use the armor of God. I'm sure some of you boys and girls have memorized, perhaps in Sabbath school, the armor 
of God, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and so on. It's at home that you're trained how to read and study and memorize the Word of God. All of you have been issued with a Bible. It's standard issue for all soldiers fighting in Jesus' army. And it's at home that you learn the importance of family worship and going to church and learning the catechism. Basic training is where you also learn how to recognize your enemies so that when the time comes that your castle is besieged, you all know what to do. Back home in the UK, we have a proverb. Maybe you've heard this proverb before. Uh, We say that an Englishman's home is his castle. An Englishman's home is his castle. And Solomon in Psalm 127 uh, agrees. That wasn't one of Solomon's proverbs, just to be clear, okay? But I think he would have liked that one, okay? An Englishman's home is his castle. And as you boys and girls go to your classes now, I want you to be thinking about how your home is like a castle and how you guys as boys and girls are, be, are being readied and prepared to serve as soldiers for your king. So with that, you guys can be dismissed and uh, we will continue here in just a moment. Well, as we begin our adult session, let me again invite you to join your hearts with me in prayer. Let us pray. O Lord, we bow our heads before you this day, and we ask your blessing on the boys and girls as they go to their classes. Bless their teachers, O God. Uh, May the basic training they receive even this morning be uh, very, very useful in your hands, O God, to equip them, O Lord, as the rising generation, uh, to stand firm, O Lord God, and to contend with their enemies in the gate. We do acknowledge, O Lord, that we are engaged in warfare. We are the church militant. And Lord, how we need you to equip us to stand firm in this hostile culture. Lord, we want to ask you this morning that you would be pleased to open our hearts to receive your word. Lord, we acknowledge that without it, O Lord, we have no guidance. We have no expectation of blessing. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, as you have said to us, without you, we can do nothing. And as we come today to think about the Christian home, which is so embattled in our generation. We ask, O Lord, that you would equip us also, that we may stand firm, that we may be men and women uh, who love Christ and who love to see his cause advanced, that we would be uh, as those soldiers in his army, O Lord, who obey and who do great exploits in his name. We ask your blessing upon us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue our study of the songs for the journey, which, as I've said, comprise a psalter within the psalter. It's been wonderful to sing them uh, throughout camp this week, and I hope that you become uh, more familiar with them and come to appreciate uh, just how valuable they are to us in our uh, pilgrimage in this life as we ascend ever closer to the heavenly Zion. Uh, I think if I were to do a poll this morning and ask Uh, Which of these songs of ascents was your favorite? I'll bet many of you would say Psalm 127. It's a a wonderful psalm, and it's been a companion through life uh, for many of us. I also think that Psalm 127 is perhaps the most down-to-earth of all of these songs for the journey because it describes the hazards of the pilgrim path in the place where perhaps the majority of our Christian lives will be lived, at home, at home. How are we to walk as pilgrims and as pilgrim families in the everyday stuff of life in the home? Well, there are three particular aspects of life in the home that are addressed here, and you'll see them in your outline today the stability and the stresses and the successors 
of the home, the successors meaning the succeeding generations of children and grandchildren. And I'd like us to use these uh, three headings to work through the psalm. The stability of the home is found in verse 1, the stresses of the home in verse 2, and the successors of the home in verses 3 to 5. Please keep your Bible open as we go through the psalm, and I'd draw your attention again to verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I want to suggest, as we think of the stability of the home, that this opening verse is really the interpretive grid for the rest of the psalm. The principle that verse 1 states is absolute, and it can be applied to any endeavor in your pilgrimage. And the principle is simply this, that without the sovereign Lord's blessing on your life's endeavors, they will each come to nothing. They will be in vain. Let me say that again. Without the sovereign Lord's blessing on your life's endeavors, they will each come to nothing. And Solomon uses the term in vain. That's actually uh, similar to the Hebrew word he uses over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember in Ecclesiastes, you, you read about the word vanity, vanity of vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. The pointlessness of life without God. That's the same word. All that you try to do in this life without the blessing of the Lord will be hopeless. And so the psalmist begins by establishing the only true source of the stability of the home. And it is the Lord himself. He shows that home stability depends on two things. It depends, first of all, on the home builder. The home builder. Unless the Lord builds the house. Now this is one of two psalms in the Psalter that is ascribed to Solomon. So we might well ask the question, which house is being referred to here? The Hebrew word house could refer to several things. It could talk about building a a literal house, a literal dwelling place. The word also is very commonly used, as I'm sure you're aware, of the house of God that was in Jerusalem, the temple. Or the word could also be used to apply to the home or, or a family. Now, I would ask you from your general Bible knowledge, did, uh, did Solomon have any particular building projects uh, throughout the course of his life? Uh, well, well, of course he did. Yes, you know this. In fact, he had all three of these building projects, and they're all addressed in the book of Kings. Uh, he certainly built a magnificent palace for himself, 1 Kings 9.15. But as the inheritor of God's covenant promise with his father David in 2 Samuel 7, Solomon was especially commissioned by God to build two houses in particular. One, you remember, was that house of God in Jerusalem. He was the temple builder. And the other house he was commissioned to build by God was the house of David, that family dynasty successive generations of children that would lead ultimately to the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, given the fact that most of the psalm, verses 3 to 5, focus on the raising of children in a godly home, it's this latter one uh, that seems to particularly be the focus of Solomon's psalm. So the question we're addressing in this psalm is, how do you build your home? Whether you're young or old this morning, single or married, with or without children, just as the construction of a literal house requires careful planning and the right materials and skilled workmanship, 
to satisfy the structural engineer that comes to make sure that your building is up to code. So in the same way, you want your home to be up to the code of God's law so that your home will be a beacon of gospel light in this Meshach in which we live and that God will be glorified in your family. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And they who build it, in this case, refers to the members of that home, and perhaps especially the head of the home. As each member of the family fulfills their respective roles and obligations as husbands and wives and children, or indeed as singles in their own home, building according to the blueprint of God's holy word. Not their own philosophy uh, of what it is to be a family, but God's philosophy, and not in their own strength and wisdom, but that which comes to us from God. And friends, when you do that, it will not just be you building your home, It will be the Lord. Who is the Christian's home builder? It is the Lord. And if God is not the builder of your home, your home building will be in vain. Since the year 1647, the motto of the city of Edinburgh in Scotland has been Nisi Dominus Frustra which is a Latin translation of verse 1. Without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, frustration. This phrase actually is also a motto of several English grammar schools, Nisi Dominus Frustra. I read recently that one of them scrapped it altogether because it was deemed to be, quote, too Judeo-Christian. Uh, And so the motto was removed from the wall of the school uh, and it was replaced with a new one scrawled by a hired graffiti artist uh, and it now reads, Inspiring Minds. Now it's good to inspire minds, okay? That's a good thing. But unless the inspired word of God is the foundation for those young minds, frustration, frustration, will be the end result. And I want to suggest that that's a good motto for you to have over the door of your home. Without the Lord, frustration. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And again, I want to suggest this is a principle that should be written over any endeavor in life. Whether it's your family, or your education, or your relationships, or your career choices or your vacation plans, or your personal ambitions, whatever the edifice is that you want to build, if you attempt to build it without the Lord, if he is at best an afterthought in your planning and construction, then you have no grounds to presume upon God's blessing for either its stability or success. Solomon says elsewhere, In Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and then your plans will be established. Or take Psalm 37.5, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. You remember that's what Joshua did in the Old Testament with his home when he said, as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. So your home and its stability depends upon the home builder. But it also depends, according to this first verse, on the home security system. The home security system. Let me read again. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we have the same principle here, but it's applied to the threats your family faces. Uh, The city that's referred to here is obviously Jerusalem, where Solomon and his family lived. 
And Jerusalem, as we know from the Bible, was constantly facing the threat of different attacks. It was the norm for walled cities to have a guard placed day and night to sound the trumpet against enemies. And this introduces a a kind of a warfare theme into the psalm, which we're going to see uh, throughout its verses. We read that Solomon was a man of peace, but he later mentions weaponry. He talks about arrows in a quiver. He talks about warriors and a battle with enemies in the gate. And we're reminded again that this pilgrimage is marked by warfare, not just as individuals, but also as Christian families. We are brigades, as it were, in the army of the Lord as families. We're wrong if we think that our homes are little independent, shrink-wrapped republics. Together they form communities, our churches and towns and cities and nations. And together they are the basic building blocks of human society. If you attack the family, or if you redefine the family, then you strike at the very fabric and foundation of society itself. And isn't today's family under attack? Absolutely. The nuclear family is being redefined by our culture. It could be anything that you want it to be. And for us to publicly defend God's basic definition of marriage, that has become hate speech that in many places is becoming punishable by law. What are the threats to your home? We we talked about them with the boys and girls a moment ago. It's true that there, there may be physical threats to your safety, but the psalmist, of course, is particularly addressing the threats that are spiritual in nature, those which threaten you as inhabitants of Jerusalem, as citizens of Zion, as Christian families. So Solomon warns, That if the Lord is not your watchman, if you do not presently have this divine home security system, then your home security is fatally compromised. You're vulnerable to attack. I remember when when June and I were first married, uh, when we bought our first home, we had a representative from a home security system uh, come by uh, to try to sell us an alarm system. Now, if you ever had that happen, you probably know what, what I'm going to say. Uh, he talked for a half hour to us in our living room, and um, he, he could tell we weren't that persuaded by his sales pitch. So he, he made his last frantic sales pitch to us, and he related, particularly to my wife, I might add, uh, an absolutely horrific tale uh, of home invasion and murder, and there was a lot of blood and guts, and it was, and, and, you know, and you know what he was trying to do. He was trying to scare us into buying this product. I mean, we had him out the door um, within a couple of minutes. And of course, he said, All oh, this is going to happen to you if our security system doesn't protect your family. My friends, our, our Father in heaven loves us, and, and he doesn't use scare tactics like that with us. But he's quick to remind you that you and your family live in a dangerous neighborhood, spiritually speaking. No responsible person, I hope, who lived in a crime-ridden ghetto would dream of leaving their brand new car unlocked in the driveway or their front door and windows wide open when they go out to the store or let their children wander about unaccompanied after dark. I mean, of course not. We wouldn't do that. And yet, for example, how many Christians open wide the doors and windows of their home to the world with unrestricted and unaccountable access to the internet and streaming TV channels, video games, social media, and a thousand electronic devices that open a portal to the worst that the world has to offer. How many parents 
have no idea where their children are wandering online or who they are meeting there. I'm talking about RP parents here. I'm not talking about, you know, other people who, you know, maybe aren't as smart as us. I'm talking about in our churches. You wouldn't let your children spend hours alone every day with a neighbor who was known for profanity, sexual deviancy, and an utterly godless attitude towards the world, money, and relationships. You wouldn't do that, would you? And yet, how many of our young people do exactly that as they invest hours every day on their phones, sitting at the feet of YouTube influencers? It's a good name, isn't it? Influencers. Or listening to endless playlists of very different songs for the journey. Songs that are sung by those who are on a journey in the broad path that leads to destruction. The days are long gone where the peer pressure on our kids is coming from their buddies in the neighborhood. The neighborhood kids. What about their virtual buddies? Virtual buddies are not only living in the same neighborhood. They're actually living under your roof. They're inside the walls now. And they influence your teenager sitting in the corner of your living room with a face in the iPhone. How ready we are to give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.27 We need the Lord to guard the city from external threats. But friends, there's an even greater threat. And this is one that only the Lord can really do anything about. See, I think it's easy for us to think about our home security system in terms of simply securing the perimeter, okay, around our home. Firewalls for your computer, Smartphone accountability with your teenagers, uh, passwords for your streaming channels, paying attention to movie ratings, time limits for video games. Uh, All of these things are important. Do them. Please do them. But friends, these externals are not where the real battlefield is. They're not where the battlefield is. It's the heart that has to be guarded. It's the heart Your children's hearts. Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So by all means, please take these steps to secure your family, but do more to secure their hearts for Christ. Again, Solomon says in Proverbs 23.24, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who begets a wise child will delight in him. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit and a seductress is a narrow well. If the boy in the proverb is going to avoid the harlot, yes, there must needs be external security measures. Observe my ways, says the father. But that's going to be in vain unless the boy's heart is secured, unless he is a righteous son, unless he is righteous, justified in Christ. The enemy within, indwelling sin, is something that no human firewall can withstand. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart and then to sanctify your heart so that you hate sin, you daily die to sin, and over time become increasingly resistant to the temptations and snares of the world and the devil. Now you could take what I'm saying and go home this weekend Turn your home into some kind of covenant or monastery. That's not, that's not the takeaway here this morning, okay? Just to be clear. And you have your little barbed wire fence, a, a bastion of enforced celibacy and modesty and discipline. But you and your children's hearts might be utterly unchanged. 
And what good is that going to do? That's going to create a family of legalists. That's what that's going to do. And over time, you will find that the love of the world will make itself very clear. Unless the Lord guards the city. Let's protect our homes. Let's take our stand strategically in the vulnerable places in the city wall and fight and build there. You remember this is what Nehemiah did as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. We read in Nehemiah 4.13, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall. What are the lower parts of the wall in your home? Position men there. And then Nehemiah says, and I set the people, get this, according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I said to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That's the kind of strategic thinking we need. What are the vulnerable places in your home? Set a double guard there. What are the particular temptations you know that your children are susceptible to? Set a double guard there and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So to summarize, the stability of the home depends on the home builder And the home security system. Are you relying on the Lord for both of these things? Or are you relying on yourself? God is sovereign. Unless the Lord builds. But you, you are responsible. You're responsible before the Lord. Solomon is not saying to us, just sit back and let God do it all. On the contrary, you must labor. You must stay awake. Don't forget those verbs in the verse as well. You must labor. You must stay awake. You must work hard. You must be vigilant, but you needn't do it in vain if you do it in daily dependence on the Lord who makes all these efforts fruitful. So that's the stability of the home. But Solomon goes on to address the stresses of the home. In verse 2, the stresses of the home. Let's read that verse again. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. You'll notice here that the theme of of vanity uh, continues. There's something else that upsets God's design for the home, and it is stress. And in particular, I think here it's work-related stress. Let's think for a few moments about God's design for the home. God's design. God designed the home ordinarily uh, to be supplied by a husband's diligent, honest day's work. And he also designed the home to ordinarily be managed by a wife's industrious labor in the home. I say ordinarily. There are, of course, God-honoring exceptions. The creation ordinance of work is found in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the complementary labor of the wife is extolled in passages like Proverbs 31 and 1 Timothy 5. We all have different but complementary spheres of labor with gifts suited to each respectively. And bring glory to God as we bear his image. And it brings satisfaction to our lives and provision and routine to our homes. This rhythm, this routine God established for our homes is, of course, encapsulated in the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. I trust you all know this, but God did not create human beings to be his little slaves, right? 
Uh, We are not slaves who are to work incessantly and then burn out. No, we read in the fourth commandment that there is to be rest from our labors and we are to find our rest in him. We rest on the Sabbath day, yes, and we rest upon our beds at night, or at least we try to. So it's all very simple, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right. Because we all know that in our experience, this beautiful balance of labor and sweet rest often seems like an unattainable ideal. We live in a work-hard, play-hard culture, and God's good design of these rhythms of the family home have been marred by the fall. And so we encounter cursed labor. God's design but we live in a world where there is cursed labor. Verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. And that's the key phrase, isn't it? Uh, to eat the bread of sorrows. This word uh, sorrows is better translated uh, in the ESV, anxious toil. Anxious toil, or the NASB has painful labors. It's the same root word used in Genesis 3.16 to describe the effects of the curse on our respective roles in the home. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. That's Genesis 3.17. And Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. It's the same Hebrew word, anxious, toil, painful, labor. Sin has affected our home life as men and women, husbands and wives, in the difficult, protracted labor of breadwinning and the difficult, protracted labor of childbearing. And as we're about to see, of child rearing as well. What was once bringing Unimpeded satisfaction now brings stress, now brings anxious overworking. And notice that the problem Solomon identifies is not industry, right? Hard work isn't the problem. Hard work's a good thing. It's lawful. It's important. Indeed, sloth is Everywhere condemned in Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, get that, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. So don't go away and say, Whitless said we could just, you know, lie about and watch TV and eat chocolate all day. No, we're meant to be working hard. The problem, rather, is the anxiety that often accompanies our hard work. And that anxiety might have a number of different sources. For some of you here, it may be enslavement to the rat race. Our materialistic culture has made inroads into your lives and your life is tainted with selfish ambition. And the result is, of course, that you make an idol of your work. And that sometimes we call workaholism. Instead of being your servant, your employment has become your master. And this isn't just true of those of you who work outside the home. We sing of the housewife in Psalm 113a. In her home she finds reward. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. How's that working out for you ladies? Um, Is that always the case? Yay, I get to change another diaper. Woohoo! We don't often find that particularly rewarding, perhaps. In her home, she finds reward. Let's be honest. Often she doesn't find reward. It's exhausting. It's often thankless work. It happens behind closed doors. A 2021 study calculated that a full-time stay-at-home mother would earn $184,820 a year if paid for all her work. An amount similar to a top U.S. ad executive 
a marketing director, or a judge. Now, ladies, that's not to increase your discontentment here uh, this morning, okay? And um, I don't want to start any family strife. Where's my paycheck, uh, darling? That's not uh, the goal. But it is to acknowledge that rising early and staying up late is not the exclusive domain of the breadwinner of the home, okay? We are all called to labor hard. And because we live in a fallen world, we find anxiety. You remember Martha, Luke ten forty. Martha was distracted with much serving. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. You see, that's the issue. Anxious toil is vain. Solomon says, in all labor there is profit, Proverbs 14, 23. But Solomon in this psalm says that when it is acquired through sleepless nights of anxiety and stress, then the toil that should bring forth profit is instead swallowed up in vanity. So what's the solution then for this cursed labor? Well, it's given here in verse 2. It's gracious rest. For so he gives his beloved sleep. What God has cursed because of human sin, God's gospel redeems. As Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, instead of worrying about your life, what you will eat and drink, and seeking after all these things as the Gentiles do, instead, Jesus says, you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Friends, the cure for the stresses of the home is putting your quiet trust in your Father in heaven who knows that you need these things and has promised to give you each day your daily bread. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. And what lies between today and tomorrow? A good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. Just what God promises to his beloved who commit their stresses to him. Commit your stresses to the Lord. He gives you each day what you can handle. Don't worry about tomorrow. I got you covered there as well. Don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. Give your worries to the Lord, and he will give his beloved sleep. Commentator Alec Mateer writes, God knows when we have had enough. Nighttime reflects his perfect ordering of things, and those that know that they and all their affairs and their loved ones are in the hands of a totally and gloriously sovereign God, lay their heads on that truth as on the softest pillow and await the divine hand that closes their eyes. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every night that was your... Maybe I should give you all that quote and you can read it before you go to bed, right? Await the divine hand that closes your eyes. You've committed your stresses to the Lord. They'll be there in the morning, and he'll give grace for them. Close your eyes, committing your case to the Lord. The stability of the home, the stresses of the home, and finally, the successors of the home in verses 3 to 5. And by the successors of the home, I'm simply talking about the succeeding generations of our families. And we come in this last section to that theme once more of the Lord building the house. This time, the allusion, of course, is to its children. Now, Solomon closes by telling us two things about the children of believers. For one thing, he says they are a heritage from the Lord. Verse 3, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now we know that by God's grace, the curse of the fall that fell upon childbearing is turned into a glorious reward. It is a tremendously rewarding thing to bring forth children into this world, even though there is pain involved. 
This word heritage really means an inheritance. And you know what an inheritance is? Gathered riches, lavished by covenant upon beloved children by a generous father. Do you think of your children in those terms? And the terms of God's covenant of grace in both Testaments affords a special place to the children of believers. Genesis 17, 7, I will be a God to you and to your children after you and your descendants in their generations. It is a family covenant. Jeremiah 31, 1, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. And of course, the second commandment, he shows his covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. I wonder, do you share the Bible's high view of children and especially of covenant children? If you do, it's a view that flies in the face of of the culture of Meshach in which we live, where children are often viewed as a nuisance, as objects to be trafficked, or even worse, as expendable. We rejoice at the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but abortion in America hasn't gone away as we know. It has claimed some 63 million unborn children in this generation. An absolute catastrophe. Solomon tells us that the fruit of the womb is a reward to be brought forth from the womb and to be treasured, not to be dismembered in the womb and disposed of. Children are a heritage from the Lord. And he also says that they are a stewardship for the Lord. A stewardship for the Lord. Many of us have taken upon ourselves a vow baptismal vow that reads, do you believe this child is a possession of God entrusted to your care? Think about that vow you've taken. This child you've given me, Lord, is a possession of God that you have entrusted to me, to my care. Parents are stewards of a valuable trust for which they will one day give an account. Do you believe that? That one day you will give an account for how you have stewarded your children. If you do believe that, the psalmist says you will see children a certain way. You will see them as present weapons. As present weapons. Did you catch that in verse 4? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Notice that Solomon has come back to this warfare theme that he began with, describing the children in the Christian home as weapons being prepared for battle, specifically as arrows in an archer's quiver. It's interesting, the ESV is the only English version that I know of that correctly translates the verb tense in verse 5. It reads, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. It's not just a a kind of a passive statement of fact. If, If you happen to have a full quiver, good for you. That's not what it's saying. It's an active encouragement to arm yourself, right? Fill your quiver. All through this song for the home. We've seen that you are responsible to act, but God is sovereign in the outcome of that action. Remember the principle we began with, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And that principle applies here as well to childbearing. Godly spouses may be filling their quivers, but at the same time, they are fully dependent on the Lord for the outcome. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The number of children, their health, the spacing, even the source of children by adoption or natural childbirth, all these details are providentially orchestrated by the Lord in concert with, or or sometimes in spite of, whatever plans you are free to make in this area. No child is a mistake 
No child is unplanned in God's plan. Not even barrenness is an obstacle for the sovereignty of our God, as the scriptures so eloquently testify. And praise God that he is filling the quivers of his church. What a blessing to see the young people here in the front rows listening and, and making notes. What a blessing to have such a herd. It takes five minutes for them to all herd out the door. The Lord has blessed us, and we should be thankful uh, for that. These are the successors of the present generation. And a full church nursery is a healthy sign of God's blessing on the church. And it might be controversial, but let me just say that the sound of kids being trained to worship, you know what I'm talking about, that's the sound of arrows being sharpened for battle. Right? Not only are they present weapons, they are also future warriors. And this is the thought we close with, the last uh, two lines. Uh, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. It is best for us, I think, to understand the Hebrew here <clears throat> as speaking of those successors of the home, the new generation of the church. The gate, you remember from our last study, is the place of authority. That's where the elders sat to pass judgment. And Solomon pictures the next generation, the successors of the home, having been sharpened as arrows, taking their parents' place in the, in the battle, fighting the good fight of faith standing firm against enemies that will surely rise up in the gates of the church or, for that matter, outside the gates in our culture. Let me ask you adults here. As you look at society and you see it committing suicide, you see the downward moral spiral, I'm sure you thought of your children and your grandchildren, and you thought, what is this world going to be like for them? What will they have to deal with? What enemies will they have to face? Will they stand firm in the gates, or will they buckle? Well, if you're concerned then about those things, then take comfort. Take comfort in the promise on which this song for the home ends. Solomon says, they... That is, covenant children like those described in the psalm, trained and raised in the covenant of grace, sharpened as arrows. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak, or they shall contend with their enemies in the gate. The confrontation of our children with this hostile world is inevitable. You can't just lock them away and think they're never going to have to deal with this world. But God can use even children to silence powerful enemies. Psalm 8-2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. What a wonderful promise that is. God can silence the mouth of enemies. These boys and girls and young people that we, we have in here, they are the successors of the home, and they are the ones that God is training. Arrows being sharpened. You young people, you are going to face some pretty fierce enemies, but you don't have to be afraid because the Lord has equipped you, and he will equip you with everything you need to take your stand as citizens of heaven living in a hostile world. So, what steps are you parents and grandparents taking? And what are you steps are you taking as, as congregations taking to raise up the next generation to stand in the gates and contend with their enemies? Are you setting them an example that, will aspire, that they can aspire to? And are you teaching them to wield the sword of the Spirit and to don all the other parts of the armor of God? Are you equipping them for battle, or are you leaving them defenseless? Psalm 127, a song for the home, the stability of the home, the stresses of the home, the successors of the home. Isn't it good that God has given to us in our pilgrimage a song for our domestic journey? And may the Lord be pleased to grant us grace to apply it in each of our homes. Amen. Let us again unite our hearts in prayer. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have created for us a very clear context in which we are to function as families. We know, O Lord God, that you call us in different ways to serve you. We know, O Lord God, that some you call to serve as singles very fruitfully in your kingdom, others as, as parents of children. Lord, we, we know these things, and we ask that in whatever state we find ourselves today, that our homes would be lighthouses, Lord, a light to the world, drawing people to yourself. Help us also, O Lord, to build the walls thick in our homes, O Lord God, that we would defend, O Lord, those being trained within them to go forth as the next generation to serve in the gates. We do again lift up to you our covenant children. Lord God, they are embattled. Lord, they are being targeted mercilessly by our enemies. And we would ask, O oh God, that you would help them to stand firm, that they would be godly men and women, pillars in your house, O oh God. So, Lord, that whenever we look at the culture around us and we see the wickedness, O oh God, that we would not be afraid, that we would remember your promise that they shall stand in the gate and contend with their enemies. We pray, O oh Lord God, that you would deliver them from every temptation. And we ask that you would help those of us who have been called as parents or as Sabbath school teachers or CY leaders, whatever role you give us to train up the next generation, help us, O oh Lord, to do so with prayer. Help us to do so with confidence in your promise. And we ask, O oh God, that we all would set an example, that we would stand firm in the gate, that they too would aspire to the same. Lord, remember your covenant. It is a covenant of grace so that whilst we use the means of grace you've given to train them up, we rely upon your goodness and your sovereign grace. May it be so. We ask in Jesus' name.